I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. Enneagram is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships, creates language for what motivates us, and helps us to look at every... <laughs> I'm not used to doing this in front of a camera. Helps us look at the way that we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram's mirror, because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado. With me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram ninja. Hello. <laughs> How's it going, TJ? That's like the second time ever that you fumbled on the the intro. And we've been doing yeah. this for like five years. It's Part of it is nerves because we're talking to one of our favorite people to talk to about Enneagram. Uh, one of our favorite guests is Hunter Mobley. Hunter is a teacher and author of all things Enneagram and a man who brings... All right, so here's the thing, Hunter. I love talking to thoughtful twos. Because the knowledge comes out from a different place. I'm, I'm sorry, I've set you up for it. Why don't, why don't you say hello, and then I'll ask you a question. <laughs> oh, hello, I love it. Gosh, wanna... I'm, I'm the, you're always going to be my front man. This is great. No, I'm so glad to be with you all tonight. The, the thing about getting knowledge from twos, I always love. I always think it's rich. It always has a tinge of, like an, uh, of a wisdom that I just don't think other types give. And especially when it comes to Enneagram and talking about the personalities, just love the hell out of talking to twos. So I'm thrilled that you're here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, healthy ones, at least. Well, hopefully you've caught me on a good day. <laughs> I, I, I will say, like, I love you mentioning that. That's one of the greatest compliments somebody can give me because you're right. I mean, twos, we're repressed in thinking. We're one of those numbers with ones and sixes that kind of have to do a little bit of extra work to bring up some thinking. And the Enneagram wisdom is that when you finally get to the thing that's lowest for you. So mm -hmm. for me as a two, you know, thinking a lot of that kind of head space, as you mentioned, when you finally get to it, it's one of the purest things that you can get to, you know, and, and that's one of kind of the beautiful sort of good news pieces of the Enneagram. It's like when threes and sevens and eights get to feeling it's, it's some of the most precious, beautiful, vulnerable, tender feeling when, fours, fives, and nines get to doing some of the best doing. So that thank you for that uh, that affirmation because um, I hope in my best moments when I do pick up thinking, it's, it's good thinking. <laughs> um, we are talking about a topic today special to my heart because I wrote a book on the seven deadly sins forever ago. Yeah. But Myers started a study on uh, the deadly sins or what often is called the passions in Enneagram world and the corresponding virtues. And so we're going to do a, a, a dive into that. Where is that project in your mind, in your heart? Uh, where are you at in the process? Yeah, well, that, you know, this is really a topic I've been teaching about a lot over the last couple of years. It's one of my favorite, uh, to use the word again, passion kind of pieces. Really, I, I love teaching about the passions and virtues. I love linking them together. Um, I've got a book that is really doing some of the work that we're going to be discussing tonight and some of the work that connects passions and virtues that Broadleaf Press is going to publish. We're targeting kind of a first quarter of 2025 release. So we're working on that together now. So 
this work continues. So you're in manuscript mode or are you? Yes. Yes. Finishing up my manuscript piece for them. I've heard that's really hard work. <laughs> it's hard work for me as a two because, you know, to finish a manuscript, to really do these kind of writing projects, it just requires so much solitary, good time alone thinking. And um, for a two to kind of peel back your calendar and dedicate that time and really do what you need to do to make that happen, it's it, it's hard. It, it takes a lot of discipline for me. It doesn't come naturally. It, writing, I love writing. That comes naturally. But protecting time and making boundaried opportunities for me to do that doesn't come naturally. So I have to work that. Do you have to put one of those signs on your door that says, uh, don't talk to me because I will talk to you instead of doing my work? <laughs> exactly. It's like a baby or a dog. No touch, no talk, no eye contact. You, you make any of those three, I'm, I'm off to the race. So I'm really interested in terminology recently, but I've mentioned one of the things that in Enneagram world can be kind of a, a what would it be, a contentious topic. There, there, There can be passion about either using the word the sins or the passions. Yeah. Uh, you got a preference there? Yeah, I do. Uh, but I appreciate you bringing that up because that, you're right. It's a very kind of interesting topic. I like the word passions. Um, that's the original word really that was kind of used primarily when the Enneagram started incorporating this philosophical work uh, from Evagoras Pontigus, you know, which really begins with kind of the nine passions that Evagoras Pontigus gives us. And then Pope Gregory, a couple hundred years later, I think thought nine was too many words to remember. So it shortened down to seven. And we kind of culturally know those as the seven deadly sins. But I like I like the word passions mainly because, you know, I try to teach the Enneagram in the biggest tent way possible. I, I come from the Christian tradition and that's the roots of the teaching. But um, sin is a complicated topic. And, and it's interesting, you know, when the Enneagram came to America really in the 70s, it first really came through the hands of some Jesuit communities in California. And um, that's really when the language of sins started to be used in place of passion. So they both work, but I use the word passions in a little bit more of an attempt to be big tent and uh, not re-traumatize all of our deconstructing evangelicals like myself out there <laughs> that are uh, still, you know, you don't have to walk, walk the, the aisle for this. I imagine TJ is going to join you in, in that belief. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's just too much baggage with the word sin. Yeah. So passions is just easier. It doesn't really passions in a way is kind of a lost word to us culturally. So the fun thing about the good thing about that is it kind of gets to get reimagined in the Enneagram conversation. It sort of means something new to people. They don't come with necessarily a, a whole host of connotations about what that word means and what it brings. So I think it's a helpful way to say, hey, let's talk about what this means in an Enneagram perspective, because the Enneagram always comes to tell us that the best part is the worst part and the worst part is the best part. And there is no, uh, there's no good without the bad and no bad without the good and it all belongs. And so yeah. um, that's why the passions and the virtue work is one set of work. It's not really two bifurcated topics. It's really one topic, um, one connected discipline. And, and it's very important to me, I think, that we really unite those two concepts into one. I love that. 
Well, we'll be familiar with the examples because we saw that great Brad Pitt movie. Yeah. But in terms of defining the passions, don't ask what's in. Never mind. The, what's in uh, the box? See, that's trauma for me. I don't. I don't have the the evangelical baggage. Yeah. But the what's in the box will send me over the edge. Uh, we know the examples, but if you were to knuckle down and say this is the definition of these passions and perhaps how they fit yeah. in the Enneagram, where, where does your mind go? Yeah, you know, the passions are really, in a way, they're kind of the thing that we return to that gets us into trouble most often. Um, they are the part of ourselves, part of our personalities, really the iteration of our false self, to kind of use Enneagram language, that just sort of comes up again and again and again and again. Um, it's, it's, the, the, it's one of the seeds, really, for the whole personality. The whole personality that we talk about for each of the nine Enneagram types really kind of blooms and blossoms from some core things, the wounding message. Um, the passion is one of those things. And really, the passion is the opposite of the virtue. You know, when you look at the words, when you look at what is the passion and virtue for each number, I'll, I'll just say for my own examples of two. Well, the passion for twos is pride, but the virtue is humility. Well, those are two really easy to, to see opposites. Those two ideas, those two words kind of live in paradox to each other. And the the Enneagram revelation in discovering that those are opposites is that the virtue is the greatest iteration of the God image that we each bear. It's really the manifestation of the true self and the soul that lives inside of us. But that virtue is so precious and vulnerable. It gets beat up by the world really early hmm. in really early lived experiences. We kind of learn that we've got to protect this precious, tender, vulnerable part of ourselves. And the, the really interesting thing that we do as humans is we protect it with its opposite. Yeah. So, so we project in a way to the world through our personalities, the opposite of really what's truest. And so for me, I could say as a two, the greatest iteration of my true self, the God image that I bear is humility. But I have built a personality around pride. And the thing that's so important about that is it reveals to us the good news, you know, mm -hmm. is that you are actually the opposite of how you have perceived yourself and been perceived to be. Yeah, it's it's like we're we're trying to solve this problem of getting of manifesting the virtue that that we're indwelt with yeah. and we're using the wrong tool to do it. Yes. Like like there was one time when this hammer worked to pound in this screw yeah. and I've decided that this hammer is the one tool that I have for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I can't get rid of this hammer, but like at some point I have to acknowledge that it's not the right tool and it's actually doing a lot of damage in the ways that I'm trying to use it. Right. Yeah. Well, and to go one step deeper, that's why when I do a lot of this passions, virtue, teaching and work, I connect it with work of contemplative spiritual practices, because mm -hmm. if we if we look at, in a way, this problem between false self and true self and we think, OK, how do I sort of march back from false self back to true self? How do I get back there? 
if we if we approach that in some kind of well, what are the five steps and what are the three ways and what are the ten books and what are the four conferences? <laughs> all we're doing is building ego, building personality. We're taking all this on and and all that does is feed our sense of control which is connected to our ego and connected to false self and passion and so the work has to somehow be different from that and that's why i think the work is more of a letting go sort of work um and so when spiritual work is involved i I believe that it's not really some of what I would describe as the active spiritual practices. You know, there's a place for all that. That's, you know, mm-hmm. conferences are great and books are great and steps are great. And, you know, trying real hard is great. And sometimes we need that. But to do this deep inner work, we really have to let some things go so that what's already there can be revealed. And that is a whole different posture. Yeah. The thing that is going through my mind is that you see this on film quite a bit. Um, you see Gollum and Smeagol uh, perhaps as a manifestation of what does it look like for there to be a false self? Well, it might look like this. You have Darth Vader and Anakin Skywalker perhaps, or um, I suppose that's what's going through my mind. So I don't ever use the the language of true self, false self. I do understand the, the, the idea. I want to push into that a, a little bit more. Do you think that in your type, like the, the target for you is to be a healthy two? Or is the target to to get away from two-ness itself when when aiming at at the true self? Um, do you do you have an in, intuition on that? Yeah, that's man, that's one of the better questions to really work with and wrestle with in this work. That's a really good question because, um, yeah, you kind of get to the to the root of all things. I mean, at the end of the day, enneagram work is soul work, and um, I'm I, at the end of the day, I'm less concerned with the language of the Enneagram and I'm less concerned with kind of diagnosing for someone. Uh, how, where are you in your levels of health of two-ness? or, you know, how sometimes with Enneagram work, it's like, there's this question of, okay, I had, I had a really good day. So is that because I was healthy in my two-ness? Is that because I was drawing on really healthy eight energy because I moved there in stress? Is that because I was secure and I was in this mm-hmm. really healthy four space? At the end of the day, who the heck cares? Um, and, and in a way, it's all the same work. And so it can be all of those things. And so I think right. if, if, I'm, if, I, if I'm working the Enneagram as one of my tools to do soul work, to grow my soul, to become healthy. And, it, and it, you know, frankly, I don't think it can be the only tool. But if I'm working it as one of those, then I think the great work of when I'm really doing well, when I'm really closest to essence or true self or uh, Christ-likeness, you know, however we want to kind of characterize that, it, it's something deeper than just Enneagram work. It's something deeper than just, all right, I've gotten to the top level of health of Tunis. I'm 100% A plus two right now. Because to do the deepest kind of work, in many ways, it involves more than just Enneagram work. It involves your whatever spiritual rhythms you're doing. It involves whatever other kind of systems and tools you're incorporating to become the best version of yourself. So, um, you know, I, I really try to encourage people that 
if if you get kind of obsessed with, and some people do get really obsessed with almost trying to diagnose, you know, where am I, my level of health? And is this because of, is this because I brought up thinking? Is this because I managed my passion today? Is this because I was healthy in stress? Um, that's not very important. We use all that language to help inform some of our choices and some of the ways that we can pivot and redirect and notice when we're not doing well. But then when we're doing well, I think it, I think it goes to something deeper. Well, I, I think it also like, we're not trying to get away from our type. Yeah. And if we are trying to, then we're looking for a benchmark. Yeah. And like that healthiest level of two-ness, or for me, the healthiest level of nine-ness is like there's a benchmark. And anyone who says they've reached the benchmark shouldn't be trusted. Yeah. Because maybe they had a moment, but they're not there permanently. That's just how, like, we're we're not, we're, we, this is... This is an, a hill we're climbing that we're going to keep climbing. And yeah. if we operate with the belief that like we are going to at some point make it, then we're just setting ourselves up for disaster, I think. Yeah. And and we're all it's also really easy to 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 feel like we're doing really well <laughs> when we're actually trampling on the world around us. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're so right. The moment that we kind of recognize it in ourselves, and we start to kind of reward or affirm that we've lost it We're, we've moved away from soul we've moved back toward ego and um so the, and that's that's just part of living part of being human mm -hmm. we're on this journey we don't like you said, we're not trying to escape a personality. I, I, there's no way for a human to try to just be true self and essence and that that would be a disembodied um in a way, Gnostic kind of experience. And that's not what mm -hmm. anybody's trying to do. Right. Setting ourselves up for disaster is what I heard there. And it seems like in, in our type, if you know your Enneagram type, what the passions do in some ways is show us what that path will often look like given our type. Would that be a worthwhile place to go or how the shadow would emerge? Given it our is, motives? It, you know, the it, language is so important. Um, I tell this story sometimes, but you know how there was this resurgence of interest in Mr. Rogers a few years ago, and there were sure. all these kind of movies. It was like, I think the world knew that we were headed into this really divisive time, and you know the universe was going <laughs> to give us a dose of Fred Rogers. I don't know if it helped. <laughs> Jury's still out on that, but that and Ted Lasso. Yes, yes. Yeah. But in that, in the Tom Hanks biopic where it called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, there's this scene where. Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers is around the bedside of a father who's dying and um, the family saying things to each other and to their dad that so often we say, you know, dad, when you finally get better, you're going to get out of this bed and we're going to take that trip we always wanted to take. You know, they're just not ready to attend to the gravity and reality of what's happening. And in a moment of wisdom and a break in the conversation, Mr. Rogers, Tom Hanks says, what we can mention, we can manage. What is mentionable is manageable. Mm -hmm. And in so many ways, that's the great thesis of the Enneagram, I think. It just gives us words to mention. So exactly what you said, we've got these nine passions. If you know the passion for your Enneagram type, it, gets you, it gives you a word. It gives you a word to kind of consider, to play with, to uh, inhabit in your mind a little bit, to, to kick around a little bit. And I think through that language, of mentioning some new things about yourself, 
it gives you some new ability to kind of notice and manage and adapt and pivot. So that's what we do with so much of this Enneagram language and wisdom is we just give us ways to manage uh, ourselves better through a language of mentioning. Love this one. My favorite quotes in uh, screw tape layers has to goes down that path. Uh, the devil character is saying something to the extent of you don't want people um, noting the emotions that they're experiencing. If somebody actually says, now I'm entering that state I call lust, it suddenly gives you a measure of control. Mm. You want them to think this is an authentic yeah. place that I've gone. My anger is just coming out of me. Yeah. And uh, But if I can name it, if I can even say, so in what I suppose part of me wants to see the the passions as an intruder at, at some level. Mm -hmm. I think that that's just my intuition. There, there are forces that are there. They may come out of me. It might be a spoiled element of me, but so, so often I, I, I have an experience that, that some of my worst attributes feel more like an intruder. If I can name the intruder, separate myself from the intruder, that can yeah. be incredibly helpful. One that I am, I don't want to be spoiled. So clearly it wasn't inside <laughs> me to begin with. Um, but uh, I think that's great wisdom. What you, th you got thoughts, Steve? I have nothing to add to that. I wanted to set you up, Hunter, on, um, with you will be familiar, familiar with Henry Nowen. And uh, one of my one of the very first things I learned about Enneagram ended up being uh, Nowen's lies, and that's always just been something that I've gone back to. I don't know that we've even really talked about it on our podcast, but as I was thinking, how do you get into the passions? This was the thing that was really hitting me, mm -hmm. and so to to take them in clumps, which I, I think it might be even more healthy. But we're not picking on everybody; we're picking on on <laughs> number heart the heart table. Yeah, but. Nowen's lies go something like this. All of us in, in, in trying to find our value believe that we can find our value in what we do, what we have, or what other people think about us. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that this, the passions spin very easily out of those. And so I would love to start with the heart triad here and just talk about two, threes, and fours. Yeah. Two, threes, and fours who are heart triad can uh, have a lot of comparison going on in their way of establishing their value and the idea that the temptation for two, threes, and fours is I am what other people think about me mm -hmm. seems to me to really easily correspond to pride, deceit, and envy. Mm -hmm. um, and so just to float that as a, that feels like a complicated question. I don't know if I would love your thoughts if, if, if that hits anything for you. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great connection. I think that's absolutely true. With with pride and deceit and envy, there is um, there is this really exploration in each of those three passions of discovering kind of how do I relate to other people, how am I perceived by other people, how can I find love and belonging through my connections to other people, and um, it's it's a little bit different for each of those three numbers. But at the end of the day, those are the heart numbers. Those are the feelers, they're the relators. And um, so it's natural that their passion is each for each of the three types that you mentioned, that their passion is related to feeling and relating and uh, and heart matters. Um, and so for twos, you know, the pride is always kind of this sense of, in a way, setting yourself above others in that you believe you're the one to help rather than be helped. You're the one to fix rather than to be fixed. You're the one to save rather than to be saved. 
Um, and then, of course, for threes, there's this idea that the only way you're going to find love and belonging is if you match your behavior to the context and you do it really, really successfully and wow everybody around you. And so you quickly become a lot of different things to a lot of different people and lose touch with who you truly are in your inner true self journey. And then, of course, fours, you know, have fours are, are so complex and they their passion of envy is challenging because there's envy in the way in which they perceive that the rest of us have an easier way of living than they do. Um, in some ways, the rest of us maybe get to be regular and normal. But then, of course, fours would hate to be regular and normal. So, so envy for fours is very complex because in a way, they don't really envy our lives. They envy our perceived ease of living. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, that's why the great spiritual work for fours is in so many ways realizing that um, it, no one feels quite like they've got it together. You know, the rest of the numbers don't feel like living is that easy for them either. Yeah. Hunter had set up the, the opposite of the passions being a, a list of virtues. Yeah. We, we haven't set up the virtues yet. Um, but I would love to dive into those as kind of the, mm -hmm. the, I assume it's not the balm. What, what are the virtues yeah. in comparison to the passions? Well, you know what? It really starts in virtue. The virtue is the fundamental thing. The passion births from the virtue because the virtue is connected to essence, true self, soul, uh, the God image, the Christ in you and the Christ in me. But as I mentioned, the, so the virtues there at, at kind of the core, um, and it's what gets covered by the passion as a way of protecting and in a way masking that precious tender virtue. So really, the virtue is the more interesting story. The virtue is kind of the foundation point. It's the launching point. Um, it is the, it comes first. And so but just staying with those heart numbers that you just mentioned, you know, for twos, it's humility. And for threes, it's truthfulness. And for fours, you know, fours are special, so they get a special word. It's equanimity. <laughs> and, and, and what equanimity means, we don't use, that's another one of those words we don't really use in our kind of modern world. But in, in many ways for the Enneagram, it means the balancing of all things, kind of finding the wholeness in everything. So for fours, the way in which that sets up an opposite to envy is the idea that for a four, why, why would you be envious because you already have all things that you need. All things inside of you are perfectly balanced and present, and there is nothing missing. Um, so those virtues. So think about how cool it is. Uh, you know, I get I geek out on the, the virtues work because, again, they're opposites. So think about a three being kind of told in so many ways their whole life, you know, gosh, you're just a chameleon. You know, you just sort of, you just adapt to whatever you need to be. You change on a dime. Uh, you know, who are you? You know, threes get kind of beat up sometimes in Enneagram work. When, if you go to like a Know Your Number seminar, I think threes and ones take it the hardest. Um, and so threes <laughs> feel a little bit beat up because we all sort of recognize and and talk about and expose a little bit of what that passion of deceit means, you know, that adaptability and changing and chameleon sort of nature. But 
when you learn that the virtue for threes is truthfulness, then what you have to honor is the fact that every three inside of them has this seed of truthfulness that's really the truest thing that can be said about them. So when threes get to truthfulness, because the passion has fallen away and the virtue has been uncovered and been revealed, that immortal diamond, if you will, as Richard Bohr would say, um, it means that threes have a greater capacity than all the other nine numbers to express true truthfulness. Twos have a greater capacity than all the other nine numbers to really tap into and bear out the God image of humility. Fours have a greater capacity than all the other numbers to bear out equanimity and the balancing of all things and the wholeness in, in themselves. So that's the good news, right? You're not limited by this. You know, we're not we're not boxing you into your personality or your Enneagram type or your passion. You are you are the opposite of that. And we've got to we get to reveal that to people through this language of the Enneagram and then hopefully initiate a lifetime of soul work in them with lots of tools, including the Enneagram, that can see that passion fall away and the precious virtue become more and more and more and more vibrant and uncovered and revealed. Got thoughts, TJ? I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, the I first want to say that uh, I, I realized where you were talking that uh, I think the movie Moana, yes, I have a toddler. The movie Moana presents this idea of opposites in a really interesting way because the heart of Tafiti is sort of the MacGuffin of the story. And they're trying to find this thing that was like this stone that, that is the sort of centerpiece of the God of creation that it's manufactured for this film. But um, like that, that's the, the being that is capable of, of creating life and, and plants and goodness and, and making, making good things, making good and beautiful things happen. And, uh, the the sort of bad guy of the story is this being called Deca, uh, Teca, which represents like it it's it's a lava monster essentially like it's destruction and and chaos and and in reality at the end of the film we find out that sorry spoiler alert that uh, when Tefiti's heart was taken Tefiti became Teca mm -hmm. and the way to restore Teca back to Tefiti is to give. Her, her heart back mm. and so like like it, it's actually the same being but but once this really precious part of them is mm. taken away then like it it's the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing mm. i have a toddler so i've seen this movie many many times and <laughs> this is uh <laughs> yeah i thought that was a really interesting and, and apt metaphor for this idea of like passions virtues being opposites i also uh in studying some of this, I I came across some writing that Claudio Naranjo sort of viewed a lot of the passions as um, stemming out from the shock points. So three six nine being the shock points, the the central central triangle of the Enneagram. For threes, this idea of deceit, vainglory is is another word that I like. I love the word vainglory, but you always have to explain what it means. <laughs> Just skip it. Uh, kind of like equanimity, right? <laughs> right, right. Image-conscious, image-centered people 
who like this is how they understand who they are is is their image as they perceive it through their assumptions of how other people see them Mm. and deceit like that's that's like the center deceit is sort of the center of that and then like on its wings you have pride which is sort of a a false uh a false perception of my own image and envy which is a false comparison of other people Mm -hmm. so like that center point being deceit and and these other these other passions sort of stemming out from that in these other ways and it works the same for uh the virtues uh i i think with with truthfulness or or veracity or or being uh authentic true to yourself true to to your core and letting that be the the person the image that you present is actually the true image of yourself on one side of that you have humility which is not thinking of yourself too highly and 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 viewing yourself in the appropriate place which in involves and requires truthfulness and on the other side of that you have equanimity which is seeing all things in the place that they're supposed to be mm-hmm. and you can't have either of those wings without this this central point of truthfulness yeah i i i love that you know naranjo who's one of kind of our our fathers of the modern enneagram of personality mm-hmm. that really gives us a lot of the, the ways in which we use this tool currently in in a lot of ways he he talks about that really it all begins in sloth you know sloth is yeah. the, is the passion for nines and naranjo kind of does some really interesting work around in a way nine is kind of the core of the core you know if nine six and three are the core nine is kind of the core of the core and in a way that it all begins in sloth and when you stay in sloth long enough all of a sudden fear sets in and then you stay in fear Mm -hmm. long enough and all of a sudden you start to kind of build projections and deceit and you build Mm -hmm. you know these apparatuses of personality and it all kind of emerges and i think i think there's so much truth to that i think when people have been dealing with the Enneagram for a long time. Um, it's really helpful to incorporate some of that work to notice nine, six, and three as the core numbers mm-hmm. and the ways yeah. that you described in which the other numbers really are born out of those core. Because in so many ways you can see that, you know, for nine, it's kind of like eight is the externalization and one's the internalization. And for three, mm-hmm. two's yeah. kind of the externalization and four is the internalization. And for six, you've got five as the internalization and seven is the externalization. So um, the passions and the virtue work, as you described, TJ, really give us another way of discovering that too, the ways in which the mm-hmm. numbers are related. And, and the beauty there is when we move toward virtue, um, our particular virtue for our numbers. So for me as a two humility, when I, when I finally kind of my, some of my ego falls away and I move toward humility and some of that starts to show up in my life in some way and become uncovered. It's like all of a sudden that's the door that opens me to the room of virtue. And, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden all the nine virtues are there. And, and that's why when you're doing really well, which of course, you know, the moment you diagnose yourself as doing well, you're not. But when you're doing really well, un- unself-diagnosed, um, 
you're not really only embodying the things of your number. It's like you've entered the room of doing well. You've entered the room mm. of virtue. Just in the same way as when you're real, doing really, really poorly, pride isn't where I stop. <laughs> pride right, is kind of right. my gateway to the room of passion and problem. Um, yeah. And so that's one of the things I think that's really beautiful too, where people sometimes... A lot of us who who have done this work for a while and you've got other tools and you're doing soul work and hopefully you're seeing a little bit of personal growth in your journey, you start to notice that there are things in all the numbers and things in all the virtues and things in all the work that begin to resonate. You're not limited really just to the things inside of your core number because as you just mentioned, the numbers are connected to one another. Mm -hmm. The thing that always hits me with virtue is uh, virtue uh, comes from the word fertility or the same root as fertility. And there's a strength there is what the word is trying to communicate. And the image of virtue as both a means and as an end is something that Aristotle works through. As we're talking, it feels like it's much more the means in terms of this is getting you from here to there, it but it also has value in and of itself. Is like you want to live in the land of humility. You want to live in the land of honesty, mm. you know, and of equanimity and the rest. And I think we'll see that with all the numbers. But and there's definitely a, a both and quality to to that idea with sin, with the passions and with the virtues. Like like we're not we. I, I want to overcome the ways that that sloth has a hold in my life, but also it's part of me and so like overcoming it isn't really i i would love for it to not be in the driver's seat how about that yeah uh and then action right action engagement with my life that is that is something that is both road to get there and something that i inherently possess that i i need to uncover Mm. Absolutely. And uncover, I think, is the key word because it's already there. You don't need to go yeah. get it. You don't need to find it. You don't need to, you know, again, that's why you don't need five steps. Um, it's there. And so through the process of letting go, sloth just releases. It doesn't, it doesn't leave, um, but it releases a bit and it makes room for the virtue to kind of emerge more and more and more. Uh, you want to move to the head triad here? Yeah. Five, sixes, and sevens, uh, Nguyen says, seek to find their value or attempted to find their value in what they possess. And I've seen other writers talk about um, with fives, you know, it's it's assets or knowledge. Um, if for sixes, it's the relationships that they cultivate. And for sevens, it's opportunities that their value is going to be found in these sorts of things. And again, it feels like this, the passions flow very easily out of that temptation. Mm -hmm. um, so you got thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, you know, the passion for fives of greed is, it really is kind of a scarcity mentality response. You know, I'm going to run out, may not have enough. So I need to accumulate and gather up and reserve and ration and hoard. You know, for sixes, it's a little bit, nuanced and complex you know the passion for sixes is fear and um anxiety i think is a better word because fear sounds like it's crippling and paralyzing and sixes are not crippled or paralyzed sixes are moving forward and are busy and active and they're 
They're not paralyzed by fear, but it's almost like anxiety is this mood music that just operates through their life and is always with them and it helps them. They feel they feel helped by it because it it helps them get ready and it helps them ask questions. And um, and then of course sevens, the passion of gluttony is, as you mentioned, that that opportunity idea of, you know, sevens want more and more and more. It's it's almost like sometimes when they're deeply in the passion of gluttony, it's like there's a they're a bucket with a hole in it and water keeps pouring in, but you know, as soon as it goes in, it goes out. And so it takes a new high to feel good and, and they need a higher high and a higher high and more and more and more. And so I think there is there's there's absolutely that connection as you mentioned. You know, the the nuance for sixes is you know sixes are a relationship number as you mentioned and they really are uh interested in relationships and they're interested in the community but for sixes what makes them different from twos um, and different from all the heart numbers really that are also you know relationship oriented numbers is that sixes one of the core reasons why sixes really cultivate deep relationship is because they recognize that their own inner witness and inner guidance doesn't have all the answers that they need. And they really recognize the beautiful ways in which we need each other and we need to be in community and the ways in which we are better together. And so I think a lot of the fear for sixes, when fear comes up and anxiety comes up, it, it often is strongest when sixes feel alone when they feel like they are on the watchtower all by themselves, no one else is asking the question, no one else is thinking about what could happen, no one else is watching out for us all, or when they feel like maybe they're they're in community and they've got people around them, but somehow they can't discern what that community's inner witness and guidance really is, and they're not able to apply that to their life. And so I think that's that's really what connects that what you just described of how the passion even for sixes is connected into some of their kind of way of relating to others and wanting to be in community and wanting to be in relationship. Yeah, I've, I've always had sixes kind of lumped in with the the heart triad in my head. And as you were speaking, I was like, there it is. It's that for the heart triad, people are a means to gain the attention they desire, but that's not how sixes work. No. Sixes are people are a means to achieve the safety desired. They are, and yeah. and and you know, it's a both and. It kind of it sounds sweet for sixes. You know, the beautiful thing we say sometimes sixes are the only number that they really would rather stand up on stage and accept the award with everybody else rather than just on their own. Every other number is kind of like, no, it's okay. I'll go up and do it by myself. Um, and, and, and that's really wonderful and sweet, but because everything contains its opposite for sixes, the, the challenge of that is really that's born from an idea that sixes just do not trust their own inner witness. And so as they do begin the spiritual work of trust in their own inner witness, um, all of a sudden, sixes don't have to be as connected as they previously were. And they are able to uh, be on their own some and make decisions on their own. And that's that's a beautiful gift. That's part of the beautiful work that they can do. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, so we uh, we actually use doubt for the sin of sixes uh, as opposed to fear uh, because I 
in part because fear is so much a part of fives and sevens as well. But but in in our conversations with sixes and and just thinking through like what what is this thing here? Like I I wish that we could be as cool as Russ Hudson and just use angst. I love <laughs> like that's a great word, but I we're not going to use angst. <laughs> uh, you can have it, Russ. The idea of like that inability to trust the 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 lack of confidence in themselves in people in things working like all of that we we like doubt to communicate that the best and that sort of it's not the same kind of relational anxiety but it is entirely relational because they have to get their their protection from outside of themselves because they don't at the core they don't trust themselves and and like seeing that doubt sort of that lack of trust sort of creep out and and spread to to its wings like you have they don't ever find themselves missing something that they they think they're supposed to have like that's that's what greed is about is about collecting and 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 protecting the things that you have and then on the other side of that doubt is essentially like fleeing from it it's 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 consuming as much as you have making sure you always have more so that you never run out and and like that that concept of doubt just sort of creeping in and playing this role in in how not only sixes but fives and sevens as well sort of experience the world it is it comes back to believing they are what they have it's it's all about the resources that I have are the thing that protects me and, and gives me life. And if I can't trust the world, if I can't trust myself, if I can't trust that those resources are actually going to fulfill my needs, then the, the only response out of that is fear. And, and then you have all of the other ways that it plays itself out for them in their sins and their passions. Well, we've got to say then that, you know, in the virtue for each of these three, um, again, it's we're we're still in the kind of opposite awareness of how these mm-hmm. live in paradox. And so for fives, that virtue of non-attachment, which is so different mm-hmm. than detachment. You know, right. fives are great. Detachment is really a part of kind of the low side of five. And in many ways, it's a manifestation of the passion of greed. It's fives detach because they are greedy for their time and their energy and their mm-hmm. affection. But non-attachment is this idea that, you know, I can I can have all the things I have, but I can hold them open-handedly. And if yes. they're taken from me, if I lose it, if I spend it, I can trust that the universe is benevolent and there may be more where that came from. Yeah. Um, and then sixes, they have, you know, the classical passion, as Naranjo describes it, and Nichazo actually describes it, is is courage. I like the word uh, faith, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're doing because courage sounds a little bit like something we got to muster. Um, it right. sounds like one of those words where we've got to take courage. Um, faith is is a gift. Um, faith is more of a letting go, more of a contemplative idea. And so, but but the idea there is again the opposite of fear or or as you described doubt this courage or faith concept is you know 
Frederick Buechner saying, here's the word, world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Be not afraid. You know, you're not yes. wrong, sixes. It, yeah. There's a lot to doubt. There's a lot to be fearful of. There are a lot, you are exactly right. The world is full of danger, but beautiful and terrible things will happen and take heart for I am overcoming the world, as Jesus says. Um, and then in sevens, you know, the, the virtue is sobriety, which is the antidote to gluttony and mm -hmm. sobriety for sevens is really about allowing yourself to be satisfied with sober moments and sober joy. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't use the word satisfied very often in our culture, but um, there's this, there's this journey for sevens of, can you be satisfied? Can something be savored? Um, you know, Thich Nahan in his, you know, book, How to Eat, you know, talks about the different ways we can eat an orange or eat M&M, you know, and it's like, I get those little Halloween time when we're talking right now and recording this. So there's all these little fun size M&M packets around my wow. office and around places. And the temptation with like the 12 M&Ms in there is, you know, the, to pour the packet into your mouth, you know, it's so fun, it's so right. natural, but, but, <laughs> you know, and that would be a very gluttonous kind of response, but, but, you know, when you can take one M&M and savor it and, and, and then take another and savor it, that's the spiritual invitation for sevens in that sober joy, satisfied living. I'm not a seven, but I cannot possibly imagine ever being okay with just one M&M. Oh, I know. Like I usually just get two or three of those little packets so that I know that I have enough. I know. Man. I know we're all that's that's why I'm the same way. And, you know, your uh, sloth and my pride has opened the door to the room of passion for us. <laughs> we can find our way to gluttony, too. Oh, yeah. You betcha. Well, and, and like notice again how all of those virtues are, are still resource focused. Yeah. Like it, it's just like the virtues for twos, threes, and fours are image focused. Mm. Five, sixes, and sevens are, are resource focused. It's about trusting the world and and, yeah. and having faith in the things that are going to happen. It's about uh, holding your not just your possessions, but your time, your energy, your your life, your your whatever else holding all of those things with a loose hand. It, it's yeah. not it's not yeeting them. It's not getting rid of the no. stuff. It's holding it with a loose hand. Absolutely. So you have it, but it's okay if you if you if it gets taken away. Yes. Or if it's needed by someone else yes. or whatever else. And then like the the response to to gluttony to to <laughs> overconsumption is about accepting what you have in the moment. Yeah. And, like it's all about resources. Yes. To spin back to an earlier topic, Hunter brought up contemplative practice. Yeah. There is something about developing the muscles within us to, to, to overcome the, the passions that we have that I think really comes out here, especially for fives and sevens. If it's the case that you're finding your value in what you have and the invitation of the virtue is to surrender through non-attachment or sobriety. Mm -hmm. That's going to take some muscle, and a lot mm -hmm. of us don't naturally have that. So how do you get from here to there? Mm -hmm. And so the, some of the practices, I, I imagine we, the, well, I, I hear there's a great book coming out in a year that, may, that might mention. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and, and can I say one thing? You know, yeah, James, James Finley says, a contemplative practice, because, you know, like you mentioned, those that word kind of feels mysterious to a lot of us. And it feels like, oh, that must just be sitting in 
a quiet, dark room, practicing, centering prayer or meditation. But James Finley says a contemplative practice is any practice that opens us up, deepens us, awakens us, and sustains us to the inherent holiness of the present moment. Um, I've, I've also heard it described that a contemplative practice is just a way of cutting out space for the divine. So quiet and silence and solitude and stillness, those can be contemplative practices, but so can labyrinth walking, uh, jigsaw puzzle working, uh, they're, they're, you know, fasting, uh, celebration, the, a lot, anything, any practice can be a contemplative practice, but it's, it's really about attention and intention. That's what changes a practice into a contemplative practice. We have an intention for this work, whatever we're doing whether it's reading scripture through Lectio Divina, whether it's fasting, whether it's walking, whether it's praying, whether it's meditating, we have an intention to be, be opened to the unseen work of God. That's God's business, not ours. Mm -hmm. I have a plaque by my front door that says, um, bidden or not bidden, God is present. And it reminds me every time I walk by it and notice it, that, that in a way, you know, God's work is all around us, right? And contemplative practices are practices that kind of make room for God's active work while we are not active or while we are inactive. The idea that God is doing is rearranging some things inside of us, cutting out a space for the divine. Another C.S. Lewis quote on that friend is that you can only experience God in the present moment. Mm. Um, and he goes further into that, but as you're talking, the present, each you'll notice, like each of the types prefer to get away from the present moment. <laughs> Heart triad would prefer to live in the past. Head triad would prefer to live in the future, and and the body types are resistant to the present. And as you were talking, the the thing that uh, the virtues for the head triad here, it's it's in some ways it is an assault on the future. Non-attachment means I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. Um, sobriety, in some ways, for sevens would be I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, there is, if you, if you, if you're doing those practices that make you more present, perhaps again, this is virtues as a means, but perhaps these are means to get you into the present moment. Mm -hmm. If you want to be present, sobriety is your is your is your tool. Sevens, something like that. Anyway, what you think, T? Well, and I I I like that that it's it seems like a lot more people are talking about contemplative practices and talking about it in more expansive ways like you're you're mentioning the attention and intention how important both of those things are and uh, I'm reminded that I've developed a mantra over the last couple of years to try and help me sleep and then after a while I realized that I was running the mantra on autopilot in the background while my mind was distracted with other things. And like, I, I, it, it doesn't work if I don't have the, the real space and the, the, the muscle behind it, the, the practice of actually being paying attention to what I'm doing, because it, it's really like, I spend most of my life trying to avoid what's going on in my head because my head's a trash barrel that's on fire and it's constantly being filled with other things from other trash barrels. And the the 
the need to get away from the way that my brain works like that, the way that my mind thinks through some of the terrible things that keep me awake, it if I don't have some muscle from somewhere else, then all I do is develop a mantra that runs in the background while I'm spinning out. Mm. And uh, yeah, attention, intention are both really, really important. And as I'm falling asleep, I found is not the right way for me. <laughs> so. Jump into body types. Body types, temptation, says Nowen, is to find their identity and what they do. This plays out in some interesting ways. Uh, with eights, it's not about control out there. It's about not being controlled. For nines, it's about keeping the world common. For ones, it's about improving things. That finding your value. Am I getting that right in terms of how you would find your value? How does an eight find their value in doing? Well, I think I think you're right in a lot of ways. I mean, eights because they are so forward-looking. They've got goals. They've got their future-oriented, and they are moving toward that future really quickly. And so, they are always they bring a lot of energy to the table. And they accomplish a lot. And as you mentioned, control is an important piece for them. More so to, to not be controlled than to control. But, um, you know, for an eight, it's not, you know, right now it's a Tuesday night. But if I was an eight, I wouldn't be in this Tuesday night. I'd already be in next, next Tuesday, you know, seven days from now, kind of thinking that way. So um, there's a sense, too, I think, for, you know, if, if their passion is lust, let's just kind of go there for a second, which yeah. we always have to kind of, Think about what the how the enneagram refines that and and contemplates what that means. But you know, for eights, eights lost their innocence earlier than the rest of us. And what what I mean by that, not that they did bad things before the rest of us did. It means that earlier than the rest of us, eights discovered that not everybody means for your good, and some of the people even that you love the most, they will hurt you. And so, yeah. part of their response to that wound was this passion forms of lust and and it protects the virtue of innocence and and lust means that they are moving through life with a lot of energy a lot of passion a lot of activity and there's sometimes almost a kind of distracted movement and passion and intensity that that keeps them from the softer tenderer vulnerable innocence of the virtue. And so some of eight's intensity and action and movement and energy is really a way of escaping the virtue of innocence. Well, I'm thinking about um, not specific to eights, but but with eights, nines, and ones, like there's this sort of, to me, I, I keep coming back to this sort of in, ineffable understanding of our place in the material world and and our effect like our understanding of our effect on the world and also on ourselves and i think the the eights like the this sort of indwelt belief that they can change the world according to how they think it's it how they want it to be and nine sort of trying to like keep control of things out there and also keep control of things in here and then one's really pointing that a lot of that control aspect inward it's not like we believe we are our vocation it's it's like you are not your job you're not the amount of money you make it it's it's you are the the ways that your 
person affects the world. The, the you are your understanding. I am what I do is is about our understanding of of ourselves, our energy, our our physical body in the world, and the way that we affect things around us. And and when we talk about eights who have this like really intense knowledge of themselves their presence their energy the their the place that they take up in the room lust is is all about that like driving toward having those carnal experiences it's it's about fully immersing yourself in that space in the world and, and experiencing the the world to its fullest the things I hit, see here, and I would love your thoughts on this, Hunter, is perhaps more than the other uh, triads so far that we've discussed. This one, the sins of lust for eights, sloth for nines, and wrath for ones is colored with anger in, in my mind. Mm. That the intensity going outward from eights ends up mm-hmm. coloring how that is experienced mm-hmm. and... As you were saying, like when innocence is embraced, it's 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 a surrender of control. We're bringing control back in, and that 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 is the invitation, the healthy place to be. Well, the core emotion for this triad is anger, right? So right. that yeah. anger is is really what unites these three numbers in many ways, and they experience it and express it in really unique ways. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's straight up for AIDS. But it's um more resentment kind of inner you know anger that lives in the heart for ones and um for nines it's a little bit more passive aggression and snarkiness and stubbornness and cynicism and those kind of things but but yeah i mean i think that that anger as the core emotion really connects to the passions for each of these three numbers as well i mean in a way ones are kind of the double anger number it's like anger's the core emotion and anger's the passion as well um for eights that that anger uh you know you can imagine if, if your virtue is innocence and you discover really early that people don't mean for your good even some of the people that love you the most then how can you act outside of anger and so mm-hmm. anger is really a driver and a motivator and a, and a mechanism for eights to respond to having to protect that innocence and move away from it. And for nines, it's complicated because anger is there, but anger feels so threatening to nines. It feels so costly to nines. It feels so taxing to nines in many ways, internally and externally. They, you know, internal anger is is costly and threatening because it disrupts all, all the equilibrium and peace, but external angry, anger is really hard because it means conflict. And so sloth really kind of comes in as a way of escaping and as a way of avoiding um, some of that anger. Of course, it comes out sideways because you can't really ever avoid it. So it just right. it comes out in kind of uh, non-straight up ways. It's sort of, you know, the what, what ones and nines uh, are invited to learn from eights is, you know, how to express and experience anger straight up so that it can be over because it's rarely over for ones and nines. But but yeah, I think that I think anger does uh, live at the at the core of really the passion for for all three of those numbers. Agreed. Uh, last oh, word on eights. I, Go ahead. 
I also just real quick, I want to acknowledge and thank you for using the word cynicism when talking about nines, because <laughs> everyone describes nines as like affable and like get along with everyone and all of this stuff. And I am close to one of the most cynical people I know. There's two or three other people who would reach up there, but like I, I am an extremely cynical person <laughs> and I am very glad to hear someone else say nines are not always happy. No, no. Yeah. They're not. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of nines, uh, sloth it appears to some of us that the nines are lazy, but the, the heart of sloth is probably different. How would you describe it, Hunter? Yeah, I, I describe sloth two ways for nines. Number one is there's a, a desire inside of nines to be unaffected by life. Mm -hmm. And so that affects the way that they show up to themselves and to others and to the world. And that translates into kind of sometimes a slothful way of showing up. Um, so it's a desire to be unaffected by life and the laziness that is connected to the sloth for nines is, is a laziness at getting to the thing, whatever the thing is that really must be gotten to. So nines actually, I mean, my experience of nines, I think most of our experience of nines is very often they are the busiest people on the Enneagram. I mean, there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of, uh, things going on. There's a lot of uh, tasks that nines are accomplishing, and so they're busy. They're not. They're not lazy in a classic sense of uh, on the couch kind of lazy. Though they do have an off switch, and when it's off, they're off for a while. But um, what they're lazy about is, in a way, getting to the thing, and and all of their activity and their busyness is a avoidance technique. Because if I can allow myself to be busy and to have a lot going on and to have a lot of tasks, then I can give myself permission to not get to the thing that if I get to it, it may cause conflict internally or externally. Yeah, that's beautiful. I have, I'm, I'm just going to go take a nap. He's got this. <laughs> no, uh, I hate it. I, I really dislike that we use the word laziness when when talking about nines because i yes i am lazy i'll be the first to admit that i know i personally tj wilson i am lazy but that is a byproduct of my sloth it is not the same thing and like i i like to explain it like it's 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 lack of engagement it's not caring about the things that are important it's not doing the things that you need to do and there's so many things that I will do before I do the thing that I think is going to be the most sort of costly. Like if I have to have a hard conversation or if I have to have a good conversation that I I know is going to, like much like fives, if, it's, if I know it's going to cost me a ton of energy, I'll do a tremendous amount of things before that. And maybe I won't get to that until tomorrow. And then tomorrow becomes next week and the next the next week becomes next month and all of a sudden it's been 6 months and i put off this this 5 minute phone call because i forgot because i'm lazy and also because i put my energy into things trying to avoid the thing that's going to cost me what i think is more precious and that's that's what sloth is it, it's not giving the energy into the appropriate places 
Well, I was just going to say, what's so beautiful about that language is it, it reminds us of how the Enneagram is so much more about what motivates us because there are a lot of numbers on the Enneagram that respond in a similar procrastinating sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, ones, twos, you know, are right there with you. Um, and, but, but the motivation is different. You know, ones are not getting, ones are not letting themselves get to things that they're not sure they can do well. And twos are not letting themselves get to things that feel like they would require me to show up and declare my own kind of desire and will, uh, rather than Mm -hmm. just kind of helping somebody else with it, you know, but, but, but the motivation for nines for that, uh, procrastinating energy often is, what was the cost? You know, the cost of yeah. getting to the thing is high. And and I love what you said because people who aren't nice need to know it doesn't always have to be negative. You know, joy sometimes can be costly too. It, you know, that engagement with somebody else that requires you, even in a good, happy conversation, that requires you to sort of assert your presence and your self into the mix and kind of stand mm-hmm. your ground, so to speak. That's costly yeah. for a nine. And it, yeah. so it doesn't even have to mean that it's going to be conflict. Um, right. Just anything that kind of requires you to take up your the space that is rightfully yours feels costly. Yeah, I, I put off a, a large amount of really good things, great, like conversations with friends, responds to responses to text messages even because I want to make sure I give the right amount of energy to this because the other person deserves it and I care about them and all of the things and I put it off because I don't want to spend that energy right now and then I don't spend it ever and and then weeks have gone by and I still haven't responded to that and now you add in that that sense of like this is this is now going to be harder because I have to explain why took me so I didn't respond, yeah. and now there's conflict yes. involved in the thing that should have been good. And <laughs> eh, forget it. I'll just go take a nap. Yeah. My favorite line uh, from y'all was the idea that nines desire to be unaffected, and to circle back to control. It, it that's. For, for both the eights, nines, and we'll see with the ones, that, that, that image of control is coming in here in terms of the, what the, the, the traction that the passion gets. Mm-hmm. Like sloth gets its traction mm-hmm. from that. Yeah, I mean, in a way, eights, mm-hmm. eights control through controlling. Right. But nines, their control mechanism is many times through avoidance mm-hmm. and withdrawal. And it's kind of, you know. Yeah. And then ones, you know, they, they control in a more active way as well, but they control through perfecting. A lot of that um, assertive energy from the eights and the withdrawn energy from the nines, I suppose to move to ones, um, control for ones, it seems to me, is can appear like it's about the stuff out, out here, but a lot of the control issues that one have ones have actually goes internal. Um, y'all want to talk about ones and, and the passion? You know, the passion for ones, uh, lots of words fit. You mentioned wrath, anger is a classical way of describing it. Resentment sometimes is even a more refined way of describing it. But the passion for ones is this idea that uh, it's, it's, it's really two parts. Number one is there's an internal anger at self for not being able to meet the mark that they feel like has been set. 
And that set, because ones are in others' reference, that, that mark, because ones are in others' reference number, has been set by others. They're, it's, it's a perceived mark. You know, because ones sometimes say, you know, I'm keeping the standards. I'm meeting the mark. And we think, well, well, who set this? Well, I don't know. Somebody did. And they're keeping it. And so there's a, there's a real inner anger. And that's the, that's the primary anger. But then there's an external anger, too, that's secondary. It's not the strongest part of a one's anger, which is important to note because many of us observe the anger of ones and we feel like, wow, there's a lot of secondary kind of externalized anger that is applied to other people. And we always have to remember the anger that is applied internally is always stronger for a one. Um, mm -hmm. But that secondary anger that's applied toward other people really is born out of the idea of I've spent my whole life doing things the way that we all agreed they were going to be done, the way that the, 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 the powers that be told us they should be done. And you, the rest of you all somewhere along the way, just decided that the rules don't apply, which left me to do my part and your part. And don't you think that I wanted to be out there having fun? And don't you think I wanted to be out there enjoying, but somebody had to, you know, and that's, that's that resentment. That's that anger that lives in the heart. And that's the externalized anger for the one um, that, that really is, is their deep passion. Um, now we haven't mentioned the virtue for those, uh, you know, we talked about innocence as the virtue for eights, but for ones, the virtue is serenity, you know, and serenity is, is an acceptance and a belonging to uh you know in a way nothing is either or with serenity nothing's good or bad nothing is imperfect it all belongs it's all it's all part of the bigger whole and for nines the virtue is is action right action um getting to the thing that must be gotten to and not a distracted acting but a right acting. Mm -hmm. and again Thus, a revelation of those opposites of the virtue and the passion work, and and it's really easy to picture serenity as like like this this stillness, but but I think that's like expand your vision of of stillness in that place because it's not just being calm. It it's mm -hmm. sort of like an acceptance, a peace of uh, at your existence at at exactly where you are in your life in this moment in this particular building yeah the people around you it's it's a piece at this is this is how things are well there's no better definition you're right than really the alcoholics anonymous prayer the sur mm -hmm. the quote serenity prayer tells us in a way what the enneagrams articulation of the virtue of the serenity means it means being able to be in a place to say god you know help me to change the things i can and accept the things i can't change and the wisdom to know the difference i mean that is yep. the serenity for that ones are invited to to recover mhm mm I love that you uh, brought up that there's two types of anger. This is something that's just been in my gut for a long time. And the the language that you were using of uh, internalized anger being the wrath that's mentioned, but the external anger ends up being the resentment. How do you place that on your diagram? I need to work on that one. But I do think that that conforms with how, with how I experience things. Um, I, I always want to 
put to put resentment in that camp alongside my ideals that somehow resentment and frustration come closer together but the resentment has a has a strange place on my like I have a map in my head of how all this works and it just it it it's it's the it's the puzzle piece that doesn't fit uh, it's an for outlier. me yeah um because the internal I get the internal and we've all you know many people will talk about ones in their inner critic and how the the anger going inward manifests in that way but what does it look like for resentment and i think you're correct that what's what what has happened is all that energy has gone inward it can't go anywhere and so it spills out into the world and this person's not you know i was doing the things as best i could mm-hmm. i got angry at myself as much as i could but then there was a point where i was actually doing all the things just fine thank mm-hmm. you and joe here was not keeping up and so the anger that was coming at me yeah. somehow gets blocked by my little systems or my my uh what would it be my impression mm. that that i have to use the term met the mark and so now that anger is just energy so what do you do with the energy? yeah well and I, well clearly it goes towards joe does it does it, it is this track with you too? The idea, I think also where that comes up for ones is that they sometimes perceive that other people have not recognized the way in which they really did work hard and do their best and produce something that's really valuable. And there's a lot of anger from ones sometimes that can be directed externally when they feel the injustice of you really don't understand how hard I've worked or what I've done yeah. or how seriously I took this. I don't know how this works for sixes, but I assume it's almost identical to how twos feel. So maybe it's that the you know that reactive triad of we're earners mm-hmm. and because we're earners, mm-hmm. somebody has to to acknowledge mm-hmm that we have put down currency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? well, I think sixes are sitting there thinking, I've been alone on the watchtower the whole time. Where have the rest of you all been? You just got to, <laughs> you know, I was uh-huh. the one asking questions that needed to be asked. Y'all were already fire aim. And I was yep, sitting yeah. here doing the research, being thoughtful, asking questions, watching out. And, and I would have liked to have let my hair down and I would have liked to have relaxed. I mean, you know, it's funny when we, that's why COVID has so been, you know, the original kind of year or two of COVID in 2020 and 2021, where, you know, everything was so heightened and everybody was so hyper kind of aware of this. Um, it was a good time for sixes because for the very first time ever for many of them, they were not alone on the watchtower. And I have heard from so many sixes that in some of those seasons, there were moments where finally they felt like they could relax and they did not have to be hyper vigilant because finally other people were being vigilant. There, there's something about that external reference thing with ones, twos, and sixes <laughs> that, like, they, the whoever set the rules <laughs> is out there yeah. and I have to figure out the rules so that I can play by the rules in order to be good, in order to be safe, in order to be, to be loved, mm-hmm. whatever. It's like someone else set the rules. And, and when we were talking about ones and we bring in this idea of control, like I did all of the work to follow the rules. And when someone else, I, I, I'm particularly thinking about 
the injustice of like I did all of the work and somebody else didn't do the work but got the same grade. Mm-hmm. And like that, like anger is, is born in that. And, and there's that the way that that sort of the, the anger of practicing and, and honing and, and, and developing self control mm. and looking at a world that does not care. <laughs> it's like, well, well, what, what's even the point then, right? Why, why am I even trying? It, and it's, it's the, the truth is because you set your own standards. Like it, that, the way that anger plays out and just has a, has a home there. This is this one of those places. I would, I would actually love your wisdom, Hunter, if you have some. The, the, there is always this contradiction that emerges when we get to this spot with ones for me. So you want to know what you need is serenity. The serenity is found by choosing not to meet the mark. Mm anymore to set that aside so apparently the mark is choosing serenity and now i'm in this circle yeah. like the right action is to you see yeah, everyone going yeah the the bet the, 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 and it's always like the right thing to do is to stop thinking about the right thing to do yeah. and you're like well that doesn't that doesn't help me at all or the only way to win is to not play the game that's a little bit closer i think in in getting away from the contradiction but one, at least for myself, can get stuck in that kind of way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. Of I do want to live a good life. Mm-hmm. Serenity is apparently the target, but serenity is also saying you shouldn't have any targets. <laughs> that's the problem. Well, it, you're right. And I think that's a, a challenging journey for ones because a lot of the words that you used, even in describing that, are still words connected to dualism. You know, I, I should get to serenity and I, and I want to live a good life. And I think a lot of the, the lifetime of spiritual work for ones is kind of embracing more of this non-dual approach of the yin and the yang of there, there is no good and bad of me. There is. And, um, and that's that's really challenging for you know that ones kind of resist some of that and it, yeah. it's all if it all doesn't belong, none of it belongs. Do you not come to this very conversation of virtues and passions with with a non dualistic that feels very dualistic in nature? Yeah, Just... it it does when you first look at the idea that these live in paradox to one another, right? In a way, they're the hundred and eighty degree flip, you know, so they're opposites, and yeah. so that feels very dualistic and. But that's why we have to realize, I think TJ kind of said this initially, that our goal is not to escape passion. Our goal is to integrate virtue. It's, it's in a way, it's a goal of reintegration, um, of allowing passion and virtue to live together, allowing virtue to, to shine and to be discovered. You know, the passion is the mask, um, but the mask helps us. That's what's that's the not weird non dualistic mystery of it. Our personalities help us. The false self is a strategy that we need, and it hurts us. And and our our work is to kind of let go of open up, but it doesn't mean that we ever fully escape. And so we have to integrate in some way the idea that I am both passion and virtue, but I'm more virtue, 
Virtue is the truest thing about me. But passion is is there as a way of protecting that virtue. And it was the best I knew how to do for most of my life. And it's the best I know how to do most moments of every day still. And, and so you're right. There is kind of a natural dualism to this passions and virtues work. And, but we also have to see the way in which there's an integration of it. And, and that's why I started this conversation with the idea that it's one work. It's not, it's not two disciplines. It's not two teachings. It's one thing. Mm. I also think about uh, the Enneagram community, or at least our corner of it, has been doing a lot of work the last several years to get away from presenting the two different types of sixes. Uh, counterphobic and phobic and and more and more truly acknowledging that that it's a it's a spectrum and yeah. and you have both in you at all times yeah, and sometimes you're way over on one end and other times you're way over on the other and sometimes you're sort of right in the middle and like I, I think that there is this this sort of it's it's more like a sliding scale it's 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 not necessarily completely getting away from whatever your passion is, but like moving closer and closer toward your virtue, which, which did in its own way diminishes your passion yeah. to some degree. I agree. It's, it's that I, I'm with you on the sixth journey of, I think there are in a way, uh, these two ways of expressing sixness mm-hmm. and, yeah. uh, and, and that live those two ways live within each six. Um, yeah. you know, some people in a similar way talk about with fours, you know, there's kind of melancholy and hyperactive fours, but it's really a spectrum. There's, there's these mm-hmm. different ways of expressing it. It's a good place to land. I think, uh, last, uh, last thoughts on virtues and, and the passions here? Uh, I, my whole thesis is just remember the good news that the virtue is the truer thing that could be said about you. So whatever moments you feel frustrated at yourself um, for getting it wrong, so to speak, in all the ways that the passions kind of cause us to get it wrong every day, take heart in remembering that that is less true about you than the opposite of what you're seeing in yourself. Um, The virtue is the true thing. That's the thing of the soul. And uh, that's the beautiful, and that's why I'm committed to speaking about them together. Yeah, I think teach. The the thing I would come back to, I guess, is that the the first, the best, the most important, if you're only gonna do one thing, the best thing I think is to learn how to recognize it. Like naming it means that you can manipulate it. <laughs> the, the, the fact of knowing that, that whatever your passion is, is part of you, is going to help make you a better person. The fact of knowing that whatever your virtue is, is part of you, is going to help move you toward that virtue. And recognizing it and seeing how it plays out, it, it becomes easier and easier to observe the more you observe it. And um, yeah, that's... What is mentionable is manageable. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Just becoming aware. It's excellent. 
Um, I got through this entire podcast without going off on a rabbit trail of Aristotle <laughs> nonsense. And so just going to... I need you to appreciate this about yeah. me, as was said earlier. That uh, I, I felt like we were we you were hinting toward it at one like, point. Uh, you were uh, almost uh, 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 and then no, it didn't go there. So skipped it. <laughs> Self-controlled one that I am, but apparently I still need other people's affirmations, or else I'll be resentful. Um, <laughs> Hunter, it's delightful having you. Thank you. So great to be with you all, friends. It would mean the world to us if you shared this episode with a with a friend. Uh, music here is by Brian Claxton, and uh, as always, if you, if you, I, here it is. This is why I want stars, TJ. I want stars because it's external affirmation of all uh-huh. of my efforts. That's yeah. Just tells you that the work that you're doing is <laughs> is good work. Hunter, we routinely come to the end of our podcast, and I ask for stars, and then it has to be some sort of introspective uh, journey for me of why do I want stars? And the solution was in our podcast today. Amen. <laughs> DJ, you got anything else? I got nothing, man. CJ Wilson is officially awesome. I'm Jeff Cook, and who you aren't is an interesting. <laughs> <laughs>